Halloween three. I paid a lot for this, by the way. But now you have it. I know I have it. I had two. I had three people told me not to. <laughs> who were who were the three? Ed, my sister, and my other boss. I wish you would say your conscience. That that too. I, your I, conscience I, told you not to buy it, and you still bought it. Here's the thing, though. My gut told me I shouldn't, but my instinct said. I should. What the f is the difference between your gut and your instinct? Cause I just need it, damn it. I think right. your I think your gut saying no was you reacting to your diet. Okay, well, anyway, anyway, <laughs> anyway. So Maybe it was saying no to the twentieth Coca Cola you were drinking that day. Hello, secret movie clubbers. Welcome to the merry-go-round. That is life in existence. Yet again, we land on a Friday where we're going to discuss. Today is Secret Movie Club Podcast 123. We are discussing Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace and Giallo movies, which uh, are a very interesting genre of Italian movies. It comes actually from the yellow covers that used to be on their version of salacious grindhouse detective novels of the 40s and 50s. But then when the genre really blossomed in the 60s and 70s. I always thought Giallo was something different. I thought Giallo was like Italian slasher movies. Not so. Giallo, as I would describe them, are sort of Euro trash softcore Scooby-Doo's, which actually I discovered I really loved. And then I understood why everybody loves Giallo. We will get into that in a moment. Who is with us? Hey, it's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. <sighs> Hello, America. It's another day, another damn podcast. I'm holding up this cycle to VHS tape. Oh, I thought that was Halloween 3. That's amazing that beneath the Zoom frame line, you swapped out Halloween 3 for Psycho 2. <laughs> Do you just always carry a VHS tape in your hand for comfort, like a totem? No, I just have a box of VHS there right, right across from my bed. Uh, and I'm Craig, the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. Uh, this week... Tonight is actually an event, um, one of our bigger ones. We are doing Nosferatu at the Million Dollar Theater tonight. Now, the Million Dollar Theater Movie Palace has 2,000 seats. So even when it's a big event, we almost certainly will have tickets if you want to come. Our biggest event so far at the Million Dollar just happened, actually. It was our uh, Mike Mignola Frankenstein Drawing Monsters Q&A event. And that was 500. And that was bigger than any event we'd ever had. But we still had 1,500 seats. So if you want to come, we'd love to have you. Live Orchestra, the Jack Curtis Dubowski and doing an original score. Come see F.W. Murnau's uh, Nosferatu in a movie palace right around actually built just a few years before the movie was made. And then on Saturday, we are doing our Seeing Double series, the Bela Lugosi Dracula, and then the Spanish language version that was shot simultaneous. There was this fascinating moment in cinema where they were figuring out sound. And because they used to just swap out subtitles, they were like, I, I guess we got to do the movie again in a a different language and the Spanish language market was huge. So while they, Todd Browning was shooting Bella Lugosi starring Dracula in 1931, at night a whole other team would come onto the sets and shoot it with a Spanish language cast. And there's some fascinating differences. Even though the sets are the same, some of the shots are different. The Spanish language version, I don't know if you want to say expectedly, because I don't know. I, that feels racist to me. Uh, it probably is. But the Spanish language version is way hotter. Also a lot longer. It is. 30 minutes longer. The uh, vampire ladies in uh, the Spanish language Dracula do something that they do not do in the English language version. I'll leave that there. 
Although I don't want to oversell that either. But when you see it, you're like, whoa. And then at midnight, we are going to be doing another midnight feature. We did our first midnight uh, since the Vista two days ago and sold it out. It was amazing, uh, which leads me to believe maybe we got to lean into midnights again. We are going to be doing Cabin in the Woods and The Descent, which I have in the booth, both on 35 millimeter, I am happy to say. These are two movies from the last 15 years that I feel are some of the better horror movies. Cabin in the Woods is more a horror comedy, but pretty clever, I think, and a definite twist on, as the title implies, the Cabin in the Woods horror genre. Bradley Whitford is hilarious in the movie. Very more funny than it is scary, but still like really inventive. And I think something people should see just to show what you can do with a tired genre. And then The Descent is just harrowing. A really freaky British movie, but it's about a group of female cave explorers, spelunkers, one of them is suffering grief. They go down into this cave system and one of them, it turns out, uh, leads them astray intentionally and there are things down there. And uh, yes, you can sort of figure it out. From there, they get hunted by these things that subterranean creatures. But it, it's really just unsettling, really well done, um, not cheesy at all. And also a movie that's upsetting before the monster men show up. Yeah, the human behavior is upsetting. The monster men, weirdly, are maybe the least upsetting thing about the movie. On the claustrophobia. Oh, totally. And I've always thought about what would get me um, really get me. And I sense without completely knowing it, like I've thought about myself being in a cave system that collapses or something, or trying to go through a tunnel where my shoulders are scraping the rock. And I'm like, no, sorry, <laughs> I got a... I had some technical difficulties, but hey, I'm Paul. Give it up for Paul Emmerman, special guest. Thank you. Paul is a NASA astronaut who uh, <laughs> just recently did the first manned mission to the moon in 50 years. He's been married five times. Um, however, interestingly, all the marriages ended amicably for different reasons. Paul is seven foot one. Welcome, Paul. Yeah, thanks. And also all my wives were... Or moon people. Yeah. <laughs> so, Paul, obviously my introduction was, uh, forgive me, I, I was feeling frisky. Uh, Paul, tell us about yourself. Uh, well, I know Connor from grad school. We were both in uh, AFI, in the writer's program. I think we had basically every class together. Yeah, because I, I think one thing at AFI, they're very focused on, you know, dramatic story, like dramatic film, not as much on genre, Connor and I were, were two screenwriters who were very interested in, in making genre films. I think that made us kind of paired well in a lot of these classes. Well, it's wonderful to have you, Paul. And uh, thank you for talking Giallo and Bava and Blood and Black Lace. Just wrapping up uh, the calendar, Sunday, we're doing our final scene double, both on 35, Cape Fear and Cape Fear. I love both versions, actually. So anybody who hasn't seen the uh, 62 version with Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum, Mitchum's Max Cady is totally different than De Niro's Max Cady. They're both pretty incredible. Mitchum plays Max Cady like an alligator, a choice that's mirrored visually when he descends into the water at night and you just see his eyes. It's a really dope movie. And then, of course, Scorsese's Cape Fear. I think it's one of the few times I, I would love to talk to Scorsese where I feel like Scorsese was, I'm just going to have fun. And uh, weirdly, he is having a lot of fun and you have fun with him. But he's, he's doing Hitchcock. I feel like Taxi Driver and Cape Fear are clearly the two Scorsese Hitchcock movies, which we can get into. And Scorsese's been open about like his obsession and the uh, final boathouse on Cape Fear sequence in Scorsese's Cape Fear was storyboarded to within an inch of its life. And it's pretty amazing just like uh, Hitchcock so when you see it I don't I still don't know how they got the camera to do certain things but clearly they were shooting in a tank and it's it's like awesome to watch 
And then on Monday, Halloween, we are doing our final Halloween-a-thon screening. It really thanks to Connor, I have to say. I'd always wanted to see the movie, but Connor insisted during COVID that I check it out, that we screen it. We did it at the drive-in. It was a huge hit. Trick or Treat from just about 15 years ago. There are two movies actually called Trick or Treat. We're showing the omnibus version where it's a series of episodes told non-linearly on a Halloween night in a town. You may know it from its cover of a little boy with a burlap bag over his head looking sort of like a scary pumpkin costume. Brian Cox is in it. Dylan Baker is in it. Anna Paquin is in it. And all the stories, I love O. Henry stories. So if anyone who knows O. Henry, he was a short story writer where an O. Henry twist always happened at the very end. And the twist was almost always very satisfying. And the stories were very short. They're like five pages. And um, this trick or treat, they all have O. Henry twists, but they're good O. Henry twists in that they all feed into a central thing that's happened in this town and everybody, anyway, it's great. And then there's some twists that don't necessarily, but the Anna Paquin one I always thought was pretty hilarious when you find out. Uh, that is over 50% sold out. So if you want to come, well, by the time you hear this, you'll have three days. I don't know if it'll be sold out, but come join us. And then on Wednesday, November 2nd, is our next filmmaker actor workshop where uh, screenwriters bring in scenes and actors come. We did our first one in October. It was sold out. We only have 30 spaces, 20 actors, 10 writers. The improvement we're making is we're going to pair the actors with the screenwriter at the beginning. You're going to have 45 minutes to workshop the scene with the screenwriter. And then we're going to put them up on their feet in the second 45 minutes. So if we're sold out on this one, we got one in December. As always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. See everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. We are heading into November and our big series is Passport to Noir. We're doing international noir movies, which I love when other countries sort of take noir and do their thing. Here we go. Let's get to it. Today we are talking first about Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace, considered one of the very first noir uh, giallo movies uh, in Italy. Not the first, actually. The first is, I believe, another Bava movie. Although I think like so much in cinema, this maybe has become shorthand. It may not be true. Usually when a genre forms, you can sort of see movies in a spectrum across a few years become the genre. And then there's a movie that everybody, I think, for film history's sake, says that was the first giallo. But it's probably not appropriate because you can sort of see it slide into giallo. But that's another Bava movie called The Woman who knew too much, a riff on a Hitchcock title. This movie, Blood and Black Lace, I believe the woman who knew too much was black and white. And the interesting thing about Blood and Black Lace is it's lurid technicolor. Bava was a DP and he often ghost DP'd or just outright DP'd his own movies. Mario Bava is in a handful of Italian filmmakers who really blossomed in the 50s, 60s, 70s and became known as one of the best practitioners of giallo, of exploitation, Italian movies, but in a way that everybody now loves and admires. A lot of Bava movies have now gone into the pop culture. Uh, one of the most famous ones being Planet of the Vampires, which was later semi-remade by Toby Hooper as Life Force about space vampires. But he also did movies like Danger Diabolique, which I really love, which is about a master thief, jewel thief. The thing about Bava movies is they're often very hip, very cool, kind of nonsensical, beautiful to look at, 
not really story driven, but so atmosphere driven that it, he's almost like a proto Ridley Scott in a way. The atmosphere and the world building sort of make up for the disinterest and hardcore narrative. Blood and Black Lace is often viewed as one of the real exemplars, first exemplars of the giallo genre. And it does have all the things. It's a murder mystery. Someone is killing these women and men who are part of a fashion design house. In true giallo fashion, you're meant to think it's one person and it's gonna be someone you could never expect. The murders are very clever and done in sort of a overly stylized way that you feel, at least I do, feel a little guilty of being like, wow, that was a dope murder. Eventually, there's a reveal about who it is. You're trying to solve it. There are a lot of beautiful Italian ladies. Before I go that, I would like to recommend Life Force. I don't know why. <laughs> I'd second that. Very cheesy. It's funny. It was uh, written by Dan O'Bannon, who wrote uh, Alien. He almost like plagiarizes himself in a lot of a lot of places. It's very very similar plot beats and especially the the beginning where they're really discovering the vampires. Anyway, for whatever it's worth, uh, Life Force was a secret movie club movie before we became secret movie club as we are now. When it was just my friends meeting at a place, and I did it. I'm very proud of it. I was like, you all have to see Life Force. And I remember one of my friends when Patrick Stewart. And uh, the lead actor almost make out in the madhouse. One of my female friends jumped up and was like, what? <laughs> and whenever I get a reaction like that, I'm like, yes. One actor is naked for 50% of the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you're into that, that's, uh, <laughs> that's something. Um, see, I feel guilty uh, because I didn't make your screening. I was in New York. Blood and Black Lace is a movie I had seen. Basically, in college, I went on a, a giallo sort of phase. I was just watching a lot of them and uh, plot point details. Kind of hazy on some of them. What you were mentioning also about like other countries who are doing their twists on noir. You know, it was in a different context when you are saying it. That's sort of what... Giallo is, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like uh, noir exploitation movies. I really enjoyed Blood and Black Lights. I thought it was cool. I actually just saw it for the the first time the other day when we uh, when we screened it. All these little subgenres totally bleed into each other. They're like the noir elements in terms of some of the style stuff and some of the aesthetic stuff. Obviously, Giallo is more like Technicolor as opposed to black and white of noir. But then you can also see on the other end, you were mentioning slashers and they are different from slashers, but you can also totally see how they would become the slashers, especially like some of those early slashers, like Friday the 13th, the first one of those. I mean, that movie kind of sucks, but it's also clearly like super giallo influenced, especially with the killer. Giallo clearly is in the evolutionary chain towards slasher. I suppose maybe what I was trying to say was I thought it was out and out 80 slasher as I came to know them, which is a genre I don't like. And I was pleasantly surprised to discover that Giallo is not quite like that. There are slashers with murder mysteries at the heart of them, but the slasher genre as it developed became more about these like specific characters it's Freddy and he's killing people again, as opposed to, you know, the masked man. I'm actually looking at the um, Wikipedia has a great, really big page on Giallo. And I guess it was Gofredo Unger doubled for the murderer in Blood and Black Lace. I think this is where that sort of masked killer archetype really comes from. They have what seems to be a relatively exhaustive list of 
giallo films and the first one is the girl who knew too much and the second one is blood and black lace both by bava it's funny you're mentioning uh slasher films like the evolution of it because mario bava uh, some of his later movies I, i'm just thinking of bay of blood which i remember seeing like that was pretty much a slasher movie you know, I'm not against totally against slasher movies. You know, I'm I'm a red blooded American. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I love the spectrum of horror movies. Uh, maybe I'm not as big a fan of Freddy. I think what's interesting about Mario Bava is he did sort of start. Maybe not start because I haven't watched a lot of those early Mario Bava movies, but like Black Sunday and and Kill Baby Kill, which is great, great horror movies. Then you did Giallo and sort of ended with slashers. Interesting career. Before I watched it or really knew anything about it, I was, uh, you know, clipping it uh, last month for um, the October trailer. And I thought I had gotten the wrong movie for a second because when the credits started, the first person credited is Cameron Mitchell, who I know more in later in his career. He has featured a lot in a lot of the bad 80s and 90s movies that Red Letter Media uh, watches on their show. And I've seen a couple of them, especially uh, Low Blow. He's the villain in and he's playing like a cult leader in that movie. And uh, it seems like cult leader and. In quotes, I would also say playing is in quotes. (laughs) It seems like they're sort of just filming him wherever he wanted to be that day. He's also great in um, Terror in Beverly Hills, uh, another great uh, schlocky movie. Uh, That's a Frank Stallone picture. You got Edwin to look up from his phone when you said Frank Stallone. Like reflexively, it was like Stallone. Cameron Mitchell is... uh, is the man uh so baba baba's a great guy man one of the great talent directors of our time but uh i didn't see the picture because i uh was tired and i was meaning to watch it this weekend but i got stuck with Montepalooza and my brain was schmooked because i think craig will understand the schmooked brain system that means working and non-stop but doing stuff but uh, i love giallo gotta love a good giallo picture just uh well because we do need to talk about blood and black lace a little bit so <laughs> blood and black lace is one of my favorite giallos For anybody who hasn't seen it, it does a number of things that are really surprising. One, it captures the mid to late 60s in a really interesting way. I need to study up more on it, but that thing that was happening in Europe, swinging London, sort of the liberalization, people coming out of World War II and post-World War II, and suddenly people were drinking more and trying drugs and having more sex. And not to say that that's good or bad or whatever, but nevertheless, you can see in Blood and Black Lace, a certain liberalization happening within the movie so that it becomes a documentary about its own era. The color in the movie is ridiculous. And I initially was not a huge Bava fan because I saw a few Bava movies and I, I thought I saw Planet of the Vampires in Danger Diabolique. And I was like, ah, that was, yeah, that was a lot of fun. It looked great. Story wasn't great, but I've come around to being a fan of Bava and Argeno and Fulci because they are very cinematic. There's something very cinematic in the Italian style of the masters that, you know, if you could somehow, and I know a lot of people have tried to do this, but if you could somehow take the storytelling chops of a Kubrick or a Hitchcock 
or Howard Hawks or Billy Wilde or whatever, and marry it with the cinema of a Fulci or a Bava or an Argeno, you would have a pretty crazy kind of movie. And so I do like to watch these things for that. Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was a movie I avoided till my early 30s because I thought it was just going to be teenagers being killed by Leatherface. And then I just heard too many good things about Toby Hooper's original Texas Chainsaw. I was like, I, I got to see this because I always try to keep. I just saw Julia Ducourneau's Raw, uh, which was rough. <laughs> I was hoping it wouldn't be as rough as it was, but it turned out actually to be fairly rough for me. I still enjoyed it. And I, she has a crazy voice. This is the director of Teton, her movie about cannibalism. A young woman goes to vet school and we discover she has a taste for flesh. I, and, you know, it doesn't go whole hog. I don't feel it would be like Eli Roth's Beyond the Green Inferno, but which is maybe a movie I'm not going to see. But it was still rough. There's a scene later in the movie where I was like, oh, there it is. There's the scene I was hoping we weren't going to get. We got it. But I mean, look, it was a cannibal movie. So what do you expect? When I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I was surprised how funny and dark and actually, I don't know what the word would be, but storytelling wise, shut it off now if you don't want to know the twist in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But one character escapes at the midpoint of the movie only to escape to a place run by one of the family. So they bring her back for a horrible dinner sequence with the grandparents that she saw. And it becomes a very, very dark comedy. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is now one of my favorite horror movies. And Blood and Black Lace, Giallo, I just avoided these things because I thought it was just going to be women getting killed. And while, as Connor points out, it often is women and men getting killed, there's something very funny. You're always like, who did it? Is it this person? Is it that person? There's usually a good helping of sex in it, which I don't mind. There's a weird Italian Catholicism that runs through these things, which I sort of relate to. For all those reasons, I'm a huge Blood and Black Lace fan. And I would probably say that my favorite giallos of the ones I've seen are Blood and Black Lace and Lucio Fulci's uh, Lizard in a Woman Skin, which was another one that really I avoided Fulci. And then I saw Lizard in a Woman Skin. I was like, that was great. It does. It does have cool kills, though. I do like the uh, the weird hot. What is that supposed to be? It's like a hot heated up lamp or pipe or something that she gets her like face shoved into yeah like an iron press for the dresses or something something like that yeah well in a hitchcockian way unlike later like i remember when i was in college i saw halloween five or six or whatever and had not seen any of the halloweens just a friend dragged me to this thing because it was on the usc campus and it was just people getting killed with pitchforks and rainstorms and michael myers what's wrong with that What's wrong with that? That's art, man. That's cinema. That's Grindhouse, man. Come on. Yeah, listen. These genres are huge. But what I loved about Blood and Black Lace is that it all revolves around a fashion house like Gucci or Prada. And so all of the kills in a Hitchcockian way are done sort of around the fashion house and the tools of the fashion house. And that adds a lever, a level of cinematic intelligence to it that is enjoyable totally hey fashion kills man having the kills be connected to what's going on is always good we me and paul actually both just saw the new halloween movie this last weekend which it's kind of is whatever but there's one really good kill in it that is uh totally of that i mean it's it's graphic and stupid but it's uh of that thing spoiler alert for the new halloween movie but there's a a dj the whole movie who's like being very you know loud whatever and michael so to speak goes and kills him like bashes his head it opens his mouth and then he cuts his tongue off 
and it ends with the tongue on the record player going around and causing the uh the needle to skip and then it like cuts to a character listening to it like what's what's going on again pretty stupid but it's the same thing where as opposed to just what you were saying craig i i totally agree where it's just like this guy gets stabbed with a pitchfork i guess Just giallo as a genre. This is our first podcast about it. And giallo has been really interesting to me as a programmer because it's a genre within genre. And for people who go to rep movie theaters, I've noticed they're very protective of giallo because even to this day in 2022, it's not like anime, you could say, has really been discovered by a mainstream American audience. And so if you're a big anime fan, you have to accept that there are a lot of people who are an anime fan. But if you're a giallo fan, it's that thing that people used to have about bands and maybe still do. Like, this one's mine. Not everybody knows about this. I, I don't have that sort of uh, protective uh, of nature about giallo. My relationship with it, I just watched several movies. I really dug them. I know that's not the, the greatest response. What you guys were saying about color and it, I guess it depends on, on the director, you know, Argento and, and Baba really, really play with it in ways that make it pop. The whodunit aspect, I remember, I think it was called The House with Laughing Windows was one that I saw. You know, it keeps you guessing. And a lot of times they're focused on one sort of item. I don't know what it is about them. They give one item and give it like significance. Maybe not an item, but like some sort of focus. Yeah, there's a thing about them that once you watch a few, it, although it's fun to see the formula, the formula almost to a ridiculous extent as it went on, Whoever the real killer is, it's almost impossible to guess at the beginning who it is because they do that thing they do in all mysteries where they want you to think it's this person and they but they do it subtly. And if it's not this person, it's the second person. And it's inevitably the last person that you would think about it. They do this thing, although now I can kind of play the game and be like, it's got to be that person because they seem like the person that it wouldn't be. It's always the person who's trying to help the hero solve the mystery or like, I don't know what's going on or the perceived victim. And so there are these fun tropes of Giallo along with as they went on in the 70s, like just crazy sex scenes where I was like, oh. And the other thing I would say is amazing titles that we would never have in the United States. Like another Giallo, it's really good. But I think my favorite thing is the title is called Your Vice is a Locked Room. And only I have the key. <laughs> it's, in, it's incredible. Paul didn't hear your description of the head of what Giallo films are. Oh, to... yeah. So I thought Giallos were slashers. And I came to realize that they were Euro trash, uh, sexy Scooby-Doo's. <laughs> That's perfect. Like you were saying, it, it's part of a subsection of, of movies. And it's almost like a, like a crossover of the genre. Because I really loved the horror movies of that age. Uh, I know you guys watch Kill Baby Kill, which is one of my favorites. Like just seeing how it evolved. Bava in the 50s, when was Black Sunday? The very early 60s. Yeah. Barbara Steele, Black Sunday, Black Sabbath. Yeah. Those were more of his uh, occult horror genre. Yeah. One of those, maybe both of them, but one of them for sure stars Barbara Steele. She would later show up in Cronenberg's uh, Shivers and they came with Within. And she's kind of like a Barbara Crampton, actually. Barbara Steele would show up in a lot of international horror. And it's just always funny to me because she's also in Fellini's Eight and a Half. She must have been hanging around in Italy in the early 60s. And everyone was like, you have to have Barbara Steele in your movie. <laughs> and she's great in Eight and a Half. She plays the really young American lover of uh, Marcello Mastroianni's best friend. You know, Giallo is a 
the terrific uh, genre of motion picture. A lot of killing, a lot of color, a lot of great soundtrack, dubbing. Yeah, almost all Italian movies are dubbed, even by the people who are doing the Italian. There was no production sound on Italian movies. They did it for Westerns, too. Yeah, I think it was so that they could really free up the camera. Clint Eastwood would talk about it. But actually, Ed, when you bring up one of the most fascinating things, I think about why Italian movies maybe had crazier style than a lot of other countries' movies earlier was that they came to the realization we can do a lot more with the camera if we record a guide track and then in post we just have everybody redub their lines. And so Clint Easter talked about being totally disoriented on A Fistful of Dollars because he'd be trying to act and there would be uh, grips playing frisbee. They'd be playing Italian pop. They'd be moving things to move really fast and just it'd be cacophonous. Sergio Leone had to be like, this is how it is. And then I think the other thing was that in Italian movies, so they could do it all over the Euro market, they'd have a German actor, an English actor, an Italian actor. The Italian actor would speak Italian. The German actor would speak German. The English actor would speak English. And they none of them knew what the other was saying other than they kind of had memorized whose line was who. So that was another reason that they dubbed everything again in post, an Italian version, a German version, an English version. We recently saw Zombie together. And that to me is still one of my personal favorites. You should have told him about the shark scene. That's still epic to me. I didn't want to ruin Zombie versus Shark. Yeah, but still, come on. It's still, it's still great. I, I don't know. Kind of amazing how that shark didn't kill that trainer. Even though they sedated it. That's why the shark didn't. You look at the shark in the movie and the shark doesn't even know where he's going. Uh-huh. You, you, you forgot to mention that there were two directors in the 70s that sort of took on the giallo type format. Alfred Hitchcock and Nicholas Rogue. Frenzy and Don't Look Now. Well, I mean, these are great conversations. You referenced Zombie 2, which is, it, I'm not trying to, because it's Lucio Fulci who was yeah, a I love Lucio Fulci. master giallo filmmaker. He's the one who did A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. But Zombie's a horror movie, not a giallo. Well, it still fits in that region. It does. And then, yeah, Frenzy's a great call. Frenzy is a Hitchcock doing a, although it's not really a giallo because you know who the killer is from the beginning. I mean, it still counts, but Don't Look Now is a pretty damn big with taking on the giallo format. Those movies are definitely influenced, I think, by Italian horror. Years later, they would do it again with The Eyes of Laura Mars, which sucked. Written by John Carpenter. And then Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. Brian De Palma definitely seemed to be the American practitioner to a certain extent of Italian horror, in the sense that it like looks great and sometimes doesn't mean anything. And no offense to De Palma fans, but like amazing cinema without necessarily the profundity of thought. I do love De Palma. I think I love more things that have come out of giallo not because i don't like giallo but just because i'm i kind of discovered that it existed late and i think if i was like 20 i probably would have watched a lot more but i'm i don't like watching movies anymore (laughs) or or, oh no it's like a harder ask i think like i don't have the same like fervent drive you know where i'm just like i want to watch movies all the time all the time that i did when i was you know in my teens and early 20s i've told the scorsese story right he recently talked about that he said that you know he's approaching 80 obviously that's not quite where we're at but he said he can't watch movies like he used to because he'll go 10 minutes into a movie and he'll have a real deep sense from all his movie watching if it's going to be good if it's not going to be good where it's going to go and he just doesn't have time 
to just watch a movie to watch a movie. He knows he's going to die soon. So he turns off movies a lot sooner than he used to because he's like, I, I just I got to watch something else. I got to watch something new. I, I want to push my boundaries. I don't need to watch it just to watch it. Yeah, I think mine is more like rooted in getting old and sad and <laughs> just not wanting to watch things, period. Not necessarily things that are even good sometimes. It's just I mean, it's, I'm just being very genuine. Like I just the older I get, it gets to a point where I don't need to watch stuff as much, you know, like my brain doesn't have the same desire. Um, but I do really like what I've seen of Giallo. I did do a little extracurricular homework and I uh, I watched because I'd also never seen Deep Red and I watched that this weekend. That's that's a dope. That's one of the best. Yeah, I, I picked that because that feels like it's sort of the um, like the equivalent I was thinking in my head is like because Giallo is such a specific subgenre. Deep Red is his Giallo. What Aliens is like sci-fi action horror. An apotheosis. Yeah, like my that's like my understanding of it and watching it and it was great it's also interesting like some of the pov stuff in giallo and how i think about uh like my favorite filmmaker i've mentioned before sam raimi i can see some of that like pov stuff coming from giallo and um and then another another like even more modern director than de palma that i think is also pretty heavily giallo influenced is um Edgar Wright, uh, especially with his most recent film, even though I didn't necessarily like it that much. I like uh, I like Argento. I know Suspiria is kind of like a, a middle ground that's like kind of giallo, but kind of not. It has like a lot of giallo elements. It, you know, I'm sure everyone knows this, but for people, the is Suspiria giallo or not is a minefield. If you're talking to certain cine, certain ones will be like, no, and other ones will be like, yes. I just want to say, if anybody wants to get mad at any of us, you can send that to uh, Daniel Ott at secretmovieclub.com. He's the best one to handle that. Genuinely, I don't want to hear it. I don't care if you're mad at me. <laughs> if you have a critique, a nice critique, sure, I'll listen. If you're like, I think this about this, that's cool. If you're going to get mad at me, I don't care. <laughs> don't come at me with that. So pop culture and final thoughts. As uh, you people may know. I work at Hollywood Book and Poster. I did a three-day event at Sun of Monster Palooza at Burbank at the Marriott Hotel Convention Center. And let's just say, I never want to do it again. It was awful. It was worse than working in a theater because you're folding shirts. You're constantly putting them back together. But anyway, I scored the lifetime of all movie stuff. I have a VHS tape of... Halloween 3 Season of the Witch that I paid $120 for. That's right. It was f***ing it was worth it. I don't care what you people say. It was worth it. And I got Psycho Connor 2. Connor was just complimenting you. That's a complimentary sound. I know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just for the audience, all right? It was worth it, all right? And I got Psycho 2, the best in Psycho. Iceman Comet, Hong Kong Cinema from Vinegar. I paid 50 bucks for this. For Miami Connection, Boys Next Door, Wolfen, which you need the screen, Dark Half, and Psycho 3, the black sheep of the series. So, yeah, I did pretty good. I yeah. wouldn't recommend spending $100 on a Halloween Ends. Connor and I saw that <laughs> this, this weekend. Yeah. It was... Uh... That's why people should need to watch Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. See that instead. The best of the Halloween series. Well, I'm, I'm, I love first but season of no, the Halloween witch 3 is is very good Halloween 3 season of the witch best score ever and that was when Connor and Craig realized that Paul 
and Edwin would duel after the podcast. <laughs> I'm just saying, Halloween 3 has like the most iconic score of all time. And I want to shout out something that's happening, I believe, tomorrow. Craig and Edwin are going to play the video game P.T., live on a on a on a stream which they've never played before it's a short game i think it is one of the scariest things i've ever experienced period uh i was testing it the other day and i had the graphic settings a little messed up so it didn't even look that good daylight outside i played this game a hundred times still was like making me like <laughs> very nervous check that out i think it's gonna be we said uh 3 p.m pacific standard time or daylight time whatever one it is you know 3 p.m for california where we are yeah 3 p.m pacific 6 p.m eastern at twitch.tv slash secret movie club which i just created this last week and so many people are going to watch it might crash twitch then you can find me and my contact stuff at twitch.tv slash connor cruz and you can watch me and paul play DD tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash nerd connor you were talking about how maybe you don't compulsively watch movies like you did in when you were younger and i know what you mean when i was single and and younger I would sometimes watch three or four movies in a day when I was like really into a director. I remember I did that with Mieke and Howard Hawks. And that's like insane to me now to think about. Like. <laughs> so I know what you mean. I think I would probably watch more movies than I do if, if I was single uh, still in my 40s. But for me, it's my kids and Secret Movie Club and all these projects I got going. You gotta but, go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can't. I mean, every parent speaks in cliches, but when your son or your daughter's come to you you're like i know what's more important here and it's you guys and this is coming from someone who absolutely believe in movies and cinema more even than when i was younger but i i've said it a lot i can't be the movie maker i want to be if i'm not the dad i want to be the husband the man i want to be that's just how i tried to resolve that dilemma i am glad about that craig that you aren't like little craig i can't i can't deal with your problems right now i've got to watch the house with laughing windows <laughs> well yeah <laughs> Yeah, I don't need my son 20 years from now to remind me of that. I'd like him to be like, Dad, whenever I came to you, you turned something off. That would be nice or whatever. But I still I still need to spend way more time with my kids. Uh, that being said, little Pammy could not sleep a few weeks ago. And so I had her in my arms and I found Sideways, the Alexander Payne movie with Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church, where they go up to wine country, but not even Napa Valley. They go to the wine country in uh, Ventura, just north of Santa Barbara, where my uncle used to live, Buellton. I couldn't believe they like name checked Buellton. I used to go up there to visit him and my and, and his wife, my aunt. My two favorite Alexander Payne movies have always been Election and Sideways. I hadn't seen Sideways in, I don't know, 10, 20 years. I think I had to watch it in two. Pammy finally fell asleep and I had to sleep and then I finished it up. I didn't see uh, Alexander Payne's newest, Downsizing, with Matt Damon, because I actually heard it wasn't that great. But I would like to see it because I am an Alexander Payne fan. I really actually like about Schmidt and Citizen Ruth and even The Descendants uh, in Nebraska. Sideways, not only does it hold up, it's really great. It's very specific. It's about two men in their 30s, late 30s, early 40s. And as the title implies, one is an actor who's just still milking his role in a soap opera to have affairs. He's about to get married and he goes up there really to just keep sleeping with women, which resolves itself in a really interesting way. And then Paul Giamatti is even more painful. He's a novelist 
whose novels never get picked up by publishers and who has to borrow, not borrow, like maybe steal money from his mom to do the trip, which is actually a really painful character intro detail at the beginning of the film. But he meets a woman there, uh, Virginia Madsen, who's amazing, starts up to his surprise, a relationship that might have potential. For a movie as specific as that, with two lead characters who, in the hands of other filmmakers, you'd probably be out. You'd be like, I don't care what these guys do. Paul Giamatti's character is very empathetic and endearing. Virginia Madison is amazing. Even Thomas Hayden Church, and he's great in it, has a moment later in the movie that's very honest. And so the movie becomes this really cinematic, funny, honest movie that does that thing that cinema does occasionally, where it gets it, in my opinion, a truth about existence that is hard to acknowledge and wrestle with, but the cinema, a good movie will make it palatable and you can deal with it and wrestle with it in a way that's palatable and yet entertaining. And so I just really want to recommend Sideways. That's just my long-winded way of saying that if you've never seen Alexander Payne or if you want to revisit Alexander Payne, see Election, see Sideways. I think they're two great movies. And I mean, truly great, not just, oh, this is a, a good writer movie or a good writer-director movie. I think they're great. And, uh, and I love seeing it. Uh, I was like, wow, this is somebody who knows scenes, who knows beats. There's a plant payoff in it that I think is one of the great plant payoffs of the last 20 years, which is that Paul Giamatti is a wine connoisseur, and he has this very expensive bottle that he and Virginia Madsen acknowledge is for a very special moment. And Paul Giamatti has always said, I'm going to open it and drink it at a very special moment. And that's planted in the first third. And the payoff of it is so brilliantly engineered. And that scene is so brilliant. Uh, I was like, uh, uh, but in a wonderful way, in a wonderful way. I feel really bad, but I'm being pulled away. Well, let's give it up for Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, man. Thank you for being on the show. All right. Well, thanks. You guys are great. Take Bye. care. Thank you for listening. As always, uh, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. See everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. Join us tonight for Nosferatu at the Million Dollar. Join us tomorrow for our double of the two Draculas from 1931, the English and Spanish, or our midnight 35s of Cabin in the Woods and The Descent, two great 21st century horror movies. Sunday, we got Double Cape Fears, both on 35. Monday, we've got Trick or Treat for Halloween. If you want to spend Halloween with us, please uh, join us for a great movie from the 21st century uh, that, that takes place on Halloween. And then Wednesday, join us for a uh, writer-actor workshop. As always, this episode was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. Thank you, Connor, doing his goo octopus. Our next podcast, Secret Movie Club Podcast 124, will be our world-famous Halloween hangover episode where... We just throw all our thoughts about Halloween and the horror movies we screened and horror movies in general and Halloween-themed movies that we didn't get to in any of our podcasts in October. Because we all, I think, I don't think there's anyone on the podcast who's not a huge horror fan. And in some ways, I know we've touched on it before, but horror may be the deepest, most expansive genre there is. And so we always want to do right by every Halloween, every October, by making sure we do a podcast that really covers everything that we screamed or thought or just pushing our conversation on the horror genre. So that's next week. Uh, there we go. All right, guys, have a great week. I love you, family. Stop this thing.